So I nearly got into a fight the other night with, a, with an old guy. This is what you want our cold open to be? Yeah, it was so bizarre, though. Okay, okay so here's what happens. I, I walk. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very, very voracious walker. I walk like eight miles, you know. Talking the walk. Six or seven times a week, you know. I mean, a, a lot. And I'm out walking, and I don't usually walk on the sidewalk because in my particular neighborhood, the sidewalk sucks, mm. and I walk at night, and it's not, you know, safe. I thought you were going to reveal that you're a sovereign citizen, and you just refuse to use any public utility. No, Go no, on. No, no, nothing at all. No, I, I mean, I walk on the left side of the road, I hug the curb, yeah. you know, do all the things, and I come around this curve, and, um, and, and the vehicle comes in, and which is kind of left to center, but it's coming towards me, mm-hmm. so I'm on the side of the road that this person would have been had they been hugging the curb. But safely, you don't do that in a curve in you know, the way suburbs are designed. And so dude stops in the middle of the street. Cool. And my first brain thought was, this guy is going to let somebody off the house. Uh-huh. Does not. Gets out of the car. Yeah, that was my first brain thought. Comes around the back of the car and says, do me a favor. No, don't do it. And I'm like, no. What do you need? He says, walk on the sidewalk. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> To which I replied as politely, really, I'm kind of surprised how polite I was. I Uh was like, I will walk where I want. Thank you very much. You have a good night. I turned around and walked off. I'm like, I am not about to engage this drunk baby boomer. Um, And I name the generations because he screams at me, you must be one of those damned millennials. (laughs) Shut up. That's not. I didn't know. Okay, oh, so, I'm so happy. my first offense. I love it when you get called a millennial because you, you're not, not a millennial. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to walk. He is. Shut up and die. Um, <laughs> he wants a, to be a Gen he's Xer a cups, so bad. He's a cusper. <laughs> it's 1980, right? He's a gelennial. Yeah. But stayed, I think old man would have fought me in the street. Old men love fighting in the street. I'm, I, I, I'm just like, I, no, I, I will put you in the earth, my friend. But anyway, it was, it was, it was, it was a very, very strange experience. Hi, welcome back to the Good Trash Fight Cast, <laughs> where we talk about fights and near misses. Um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Still Dalton, unfortunately. And we have a special guest host today. And I'm still Alexander Bohannon. Ah, yay! yay! <laughs> Triumphant return, friends renewed. Hello. Well, Welcome back to Shocktober, the Ocho. <laughs> I love it every time you say it. It gives me, uh, gives me tingles. The dogs get excited when you say it too. <laughs> Through the door. The actual um, colon um, phrase is the dead spots, and we are looking at the movies that are the huge blind spots for us as listeners. Last time we looked at Bride of Frankenstein. The time before that we looked at um, Dawn of the Dead. This week Alex is back, and she has a pick. What have you picked, Alex? I've picked a little man named Alfred Hitchcock and his 1960 film. Psycho. So, yeah, we're going to look at Psycho, which is going to be scads of fun, <laughs> dear listener. Now, if you've tuned into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, we need to tell you a couple things. First of all, this is not a review show, it's an analysis show, and that means we're going to spoil the ending, which Albert Hitchcock would be very mad about, and we might yes. talk about that here in just a few moments. I imagine we will discuss it at some length once we uh, start uh, talking production histories, yeah. It's kind of a thing. But um, that being said, um, if you haven't seen Psycho... Um, 
what we want to say is we're gonna spoil it, um, which is something of a thing, um, because what we do in analysis is we talk about the entire nature of the plot. So, um, in order to give you a brief reprieve, though, we've got a synopsis from the voice of the cinema. No, we don't do the voice of the cinema anymore. No, it's just Arthur and his beautiful dulcet uh, tones. I've okay. triggered Hi. all of the past stuff. Yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. We're, <laughs> we're we've uh, we've shifted into a another reality. <laughs> yeah, something. Well, we're gonna have a synopsis from Arthur, <laughs> whenever voice he chooses to use, hmm. and then we're gonna do our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. We're gonna expand the syllabus, which will be a little bit more spoilerful than a review would be, and then we're gonna get down to our analysis, which is gonna be spoiler filled. You've been warned. So, without any further ado. Dr. Arthur Gordon, let's hear that synopsis, please. I was going to do it in the voice of mother, but that would be a thing that I'd have to try to do. <laughs> yeah, you'd really have to. No, then. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, uh, in 1960, um, Alfred Hitchcock followed up uh, his hit, North by Northwest. Uh, very popular, very successful. And he decided to uh, streamline things. He said, I want to make uh, something a little, a little easier, a little trashier. So he takes his production crew from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and uh, does a little black and white uh, trash film called Psycho uh, in which Marion Crane uh, is in the midst of a love affair with divorcee uh, Sam Loomis. Uh, and uh, Sam's a little in debt. So uh, one day at the office, uh, after uh, her boss sells a property for $40,000 in cash, uh, Marion uh, fills that debt, fills the love, and uh, decides to skip town with that money. Uh, it's wild to think about a uh, life-changing amount of money just fits so cleanly into an envelope. Well, yeah, it also and then becomes a the plot of a Steve Miller song. No Go on, take the money and run. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Uh, immediately regretting this decision and feeling that guilt, she uh, heads towards uh, her lover. And uh, along the way, it starts raining and uh, she feels a little tired. So she pulls into the Bates Motel for uh, a night of uh, rest. Big uh, mistake. Oh, while she's there, she meets one uh, Norman Bates, uh, the uh, son, proprietor of uh, Bates Motel, uh, who lovingly offers her the first cabin so she doesn't have to get uh, wet or be too far away in case Gee, she needs how anything. how thoughtful of him. He also makes her a sandwich, and then they have a nice conversation about family and uh, responsibilities. Uh, she feels the, uh, the tug to recant and do what's right, uh, but uh, things go south uh, pretty quick. Uh, Marion disappears, and then uh, her sister Lila, played by Vera Miles, her boyfriend Sam, and Detective Arbogast are on the scene Love to try to figure out where Marion went and what happened to that $40,000. It is Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 hit, Psycho. Very good, very good. I mean, those are the things in the movie, and that was actually... A relatively spoilerless um, yeah. synopsis. I'm kind of yeah. impressed, and Thank with you. all the detail that was necessary. Seemed like he was spinning off the dome too. He was. I yeah. knew it. Uh, yeah, a consummate professional. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Okay, so let's just talk about our reactions. I'm going to start with you, Alex, picker of the film. Yes. So you have never seen Psycho. Okay. So I, I, I have a question to sort of preamble. Did you know? Okay, so the caveat is I had seen Psycho. Oh. However. I was having a very, very long, rough day, and I fell asleep about a third into it. Okay. Which, you know, offending everyone well, listening yeah, to this It show. happens. But, you know, black and white, fully dark room, I'm exhausted, and I fall asleep. A black and white can be out. hypnotic. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. combination that's definitely... Right. Yeah. But I think I did wake up... I mean, I I obviously knew the 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 big beats, and then I think I woke up 
before the the twist, which I don't think I actually knew the the oh. the twist. So, but I did wake up for the twist, so I learned it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd Ar- say that counts as having not seen it though. For yeah, sure. uh, Arbogast. I I was like after the you know the big famous sequence, I was like I actually don't know what happens until we get to the twist. So that was fun. Okay, getting to watch it fully awake. <laughs> So fair enough uh, there with the twist reactions. So what is your actual reaction to rewatching the film for this show? Um, I I'm enamored with this movie. It does nice. everything right. I mean, it's you. It doesn't even fall into that that thing where it's like, oh, so many other movies are aping off of it and makes it unenjoyable to watch. Sure, lots of movies are cribbing off of it, but it doesn't matter. Like it totally, it's elevated above all of those other films. Like even if. They're citing it as the source material. So it, it that itself, it was an enjoyment to watch the fe- way that Hitchcock ratchets up tension from little things as her buying a used car and um, getting to the motel where you know something's going to go wrong, but you just can't put your finger on what's going to happen. All of these little tiny pieces um, of inherent creepiness, nothing... And the, and the other best part is that nothing is extremely telegraphed. You're not seeing like abject gore, or terror, or, you know, torture, or whatever on screen. It's just it just is understated, and that's where some of the the inherent uh, scare comes from. And so I I can't recommend it more highly. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much, Miss Alexandra Bohan and Mr. Arthur Gordon. Do you like Psycho? No, I love Psycho. <laughs> Psycho is one of the, man, uh, I think my mom showed me this movie when I was, I had to be a kid, and she told me how it scared her from taking showers for like a year, oh, right, because she's, I mean, she would have seen it very young uh, when it was pretty fresh, and, and so uh, I've always kind of had it in the back of my pocket, it's one of those influential movies for me, and uh, yeah, Alex is right, Hitch, Hitch does everything correct in this film, and it's it's hard, I think, to appreciate it fully in in seeing it in you know the modern era because of the impact of having an A lister in uh, Janet Lee and her fate so soon in that film. Uh, coupled that with he takes a production crew from a TV show to make this. He's not setting out to do anything fancy. He's not setting out to do a big high thriller like. Uh, North by Northwest, he's he's going to do a little thing, and and it becomes one of the most influential movies of all time. I, I think it's safe to say, especially of his oeuvre, and the way he pieces pieces it together, uh, Anthony Perkins bringing him in is a masterstroke because he is able to capture that boyish charm that is so important to Norman Bates, that innocence that is so inherent in that face, and, and those brooding, thoughtful eyes, just. The way he looks in a room when people are absent after he's, uh, you know, I think given her the keys to the room and she walks off, he just kind of looks around. He does something similar after uh, he talks with Sam and, and Lila and he's just got these thoughtful eyes and he's got this posture, the bird pecking away, you know, to imitate the birds of prey in his office. Um, and, and Janet Lee is, is phenomenal. Janet Lee is money. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, and wonderful here. The, the way. Uh, Hitchcock portrays that guilt so quick in the car. Uh, you know, she instantly regrets it, and he does that fun voiceover of of potential conversations, something you don't see very often. It's the imagined conversations playing in her head that are so uh, unique. Uh, photographing all the adversaries, the policemen, and those tight close-ups of the eyes. He does it again with uh, Arbogast later on when he's confronting people. Um, just a unique choice. And then, of course, Bernard Herrmann's score. 
phenomenal. Uh, one of the best scores uh, encapsulated by uh, the shower scene when those violins hit, and it's, it's incredible. Uh, Correct. Top to finish. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of broken down into two movies. You've got the the Marion version, and then you've got the Lila story, and it all comes together. I think in a masterful way. It does seem a little dated. I don't hold that against it, but I mean, it's working in the studio. He's working with sets. He's working in that kind of costuming. So it does feel a little dated in that regard, but I don't think it messes anything up. And I go back and forth on that epilogue with the uh, psychiatrist. Goddamn psychiatrist. <laughs> oh, I, okay. I get I, I, it. I do, do want to little... call a moratorium on the epilogue because I want to save it for analysis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I, I, I do think... Uh, it's one thing I do go back and forth with every time I watch it because I know it was probably needed in 1960, but it's just a little too much for me. Uh, but I, I'm, again, it's not going to bring it down. I, I think everything that comes before it, everything in that first hour earns this movie a place, you know, on a show. And, and you know, this is probably the the heaviest hitter we've done on this show ever uh, because this is one that is going to be in a basic film studies course. I, I mean, of all the films I think we've done this, this and stagecoach probably. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I, I love that Alex picked it. I was so excited. Dustin and I were talking last week. We could have done this cold mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I just appreciate this movie a lot. So yeah. Yeah. All thumbs up. Excellent. Excellent. Um, how many thumbs is that for you? At least six. Okay. That's what I kind of <laughs> figured. Um, Hey Dalton, do you like psycho? Well, yeah, I do. Uh, much like Arthur, I was shown this movie very early. My father, uh, not the one that took me to see Training Day, the other one, uh, saw this movie when he was like 12 at a yeah. drive-in, I think. See the illustrated children's book, Dalton Has Two Daddies, moving yeah. on. <laughs> In the good trash store. Uh, yeah, well, it's a, it's a different, but that's it's, a, it's not the book you think it is. It's it's two daddies, one mommy. It's a whole thing. Anyway. Uh, it's sadder. <laughs> well, yeah, yes. Uh it is. <laughs> My father, though, big fan of this movie. Uh, much like Arthur's mom, scared him off the showers, really built up this film to me. And I can't remember if I actually watched it with him or watched it because of uh, the hype that had been given to me. But yeah, this movie plays, still plays on TV all the time. Uh, and that was my first exposure to it. And uh, still don't. Still a bath guy. I'll take a shower. It's not my preferred <laughs> preference. Uh, I like to see what's going on in that bathroom, y'all. Uh, yeah, this movie's great. Uh, I like it so much that I uh, became a fan, and uh, we alluded to this off-air. Dustin and I are the only two people that remember Psycho 4, colon, The Beginning, which was a made-for Showtime feature, uh, still starring Anthony Perkins, uh, that's mostly uh, flashbacks. It's a, a lot of uh, laying the groundwork for what would become uh, the show Bates Motel uh, with Freddie so Highmore. good. It's an underrated movie. Uh, it makes all the uh, Oedipal stuff that's implied about Norman and Mrs. Bates it's very explicit. Um, comp- well, okay, more on that anon. More on that anon, but I, I like Psycho a lot. I liked it so much that uh, I was fascinated with the psychology of this character, and it made me really... Look, I was also 13, and uh, all the, uh, the edits uh, couldn't stop me from seeing what was going on in Psycho 4 at the beginning. I was very intrigued by that. Uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> I, all of this to say that there is a lot going on in this movie, and talking about film is often talking about the history of complete and utter bastards, and I wish I could come to you and say something mean about this movie because, you know, Hitchcock was kind of a turkey, uh, and because this movie was in all, all a, a lot of ways, uh, you've heard, you'll hear the argument made in scholarship around this film that it was 
as Arthur alluded to, kind of a big troll, uh, not only of audiences, but of the studios and of his actors. And it was just kind of him being a dick to everybody. Uh, and again, that background makes me want to be able to say something mean about this film. I went into it thinking about how this film was kind of structured in two halves and thinking, well, the first half's obviously way better, maybe. No, this time I was really enamored with the way these two halves fit together, and we'll talk about that more in analysis probably. Uh, but, uh, well, we will. I have, I have things I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going and to And no happen. one can silence the Dalton. Well, <laughs> if we've could. learned anything. Well, uh, a big enough butcher knife, I bet you could. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Uh, I'll end... Ooh, let's try. Well, so my uh, co-hosts don't do a stab on me. I'll, I'll wrap up quickly by saying this. Uh, I learned today that Saul Bass did storyboards for the shower scene, which kicks an infinite amount of ass and explains That's a whole bunch. Awesome. Uh, and I will close out with uh, some thoughts on this film from two people smarter than me. Uh, the first is uh, a little bit, uh, a little blurb Karen Kusama has on the uh, documentary 7852 about the shower scene. Uh, Karen Kusama said something to the effect, uh, and I was just really struck by this, that uh, it was probably the first modern experience of a, an assault on a female body. Uh, in cinema, and there's, she said the the wish phrase was, "There's something pure about." The... Does she mean modern or modernist? I'm just curious. I uh, didn't watch the whole documentary, so I don't know. They didn't play that blurb again, as far as I got in, so I didn't get to hear her expound on her thoughts there. But she did explicitly say modern, not curious. modernist. Okay. Anyway, uh, at least in in film, but uh, the argument that was made was there's a purity to that expression because it is such a scene of devastation. It is not. It's flashy only to show the quickness and brutality of the violence. It's not flashy to make it cool. Uh, and there is a lot of dead air at the end of that scene uh, to really drive home what the scene was doing. Uh, on the flip side of that, though, you have this really interesting uh, case of C.A. Jaloon, uh, who was a very early uh, film critic. I think I got that last name right. My Or uh, Lejeune. There we go. Um, but uh, she started doing uh, film critique in the 20s. Uh, she was a big lit uh, person and dropped out of the world of lit analysis because she saw film was going to be a uh, hot shit. Uh, did about 40 years of film work in a 1960 Psycho and Peeping Tom come out, and she hates them both, and uh -huh. everybody loves them, and she quits doing uh, film analysis because yep. she's like, oh, well, people like this, this garbage yep. about violence against women now. And uh, there is something to be said for the negative impact of Psycho in the shower scene. There's also a lot to be said of the positive impact of not letting us be afraid to show how violent the world is. And uh, we will talk about that and more, I'm sure, as the show continues. But all that to say, yeah, I like this damn movie a lot, complications and all. Hey, Dustin, do you like Psycho? So I will first want to say thank you to Dalton for titillating us, like Alfred Hitchcock, for analysis. Yes, I've so been for known for building I, I some nothing. suspense. Thank you. Um, Psycho's real good, y'all. Um, <laughs> what, what do you want me to say? I mean... Seriously, it's, it's psycho. a jam. Yeah, it is. It is so good. It is so enthralling. It is so. Um, it, there's a way in which Alfred Hitchcock has built for himself this um, sort of aura around him as a master of suspense, and then he absolutely cashes in on all of it with Psycho. It is perfect from start to finish, with maybe the last ten minutes as an exception. We'll talk more about that later. But um, the performances are amazing. Um, you know, we, we're we're remembering the um, passing of Janet Lee um, in the last three days from the recording time of this show. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis, her daughter. Wait, um, what? Uh, she died. Uh, her anniversary is like two days ago. 
Oh, oh yeah. Sorry, you said anniversary that. Anniversary of her like death. Her, yeah, I was like, I, was I thought like, she died years ago. Yeah. What? No, uh, no, no, I no. thought we had another Ava Goat on our hands. No, no, but it's no, like no. a tenth year in, like a gotcha. twenty or thirty, twenty years, something, like, yeah, that. something yeah. like that. Yeah, something like that. Wow, she's been dead since the eighties, I think. Like, oh, wow, like okay. Hitchcock, who died in nineteen eighty, yeah, as well. But it, it's a movie that a hundred percent holds up. It is brilliant. And so, yes, Janet Lee's performance is amazing. Um, Vera Miles' performance is amazing. The dudes are okay. Um, they do they do their job. They're there. How They're, dare you slander Anthony Perkins? Oh, oh, oh. I, I, the, the, he means Arbogast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, fuck those guys. I, I, <laughs> and the fuckboy. I can't remember his name. Sam? Sam, Sam Lee. Yeah. No, I, I like Arbogast. Sam's a fuckboy, absolutely. <laughs> we are going to talk so much about Sam later. <laughs> With the exception of Tony Perkins is where I was going. Oh, my yeah. boy. Because um, Tony rocks it. And and can, uh, we've been light on Hunk Watch in the back half of 2019, <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, Hunk Watch is back this episode. Arthur's right; those eyes, they brood. And and, and, and Tony does some work that um, queers the gays in ways that are fascinating, and his own life story also queers the gays in a way that is very fascinating as well, um, because you know, he was married at the end of his life, like his entire life. Uh, Quick brief history on Tony Perkins. Yeah, please. please. His his first heterosexual experience happens at about age 35, 38, something like that. And he ends up married at the end of his life, but all of his experiences up until that point were homosexual experiences. Interesting. Well, yeah, I knew he was married because Osgood Perkins, his son's uh, a director of some note. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, he was... Not within the binary. Um, that's what I want to say. And so, um, Perkins like complicates all of our lives in, in ways. If you consider him with all of his details and the film itself does that as well. A film that ended a career that was going real good. Because he, well, because he's so. We'll get there. We'll yeah, get yeah. there. I'm we'll, sorry. I'm we'll, getting so excited. We'll totally get there. I will say this with my experience with Hitchcock and with Psycho begins with Joseph Stefano, who wrote the screenplay for Psycho Four as well as the first Psycho, um, and it begins with Psycho Four. The you first, saw it first. I saw it first, and so I knew all the backstory coming in. And I got to tell you, gang, it did not matter. Hitchcock was wrong. It doesn't matter how it ends because it's so amazing getting there. He nails it. And so, yes, I love Hitchcock. I love Psycho. It's incredible. So um, all the thumbs I have. Uh, Arthur's got six. I have five. Um, I don't know how. Solid to... 11 thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> that was very fast math. Um, for me, it would be very fast math. Yeah. Um, so I'm very impressed with that. So let's expand the syllabus a little bit, shall we? Please. Um, Can so we? <laughs> you are teaching a class in which Psycho is this week. We'll say it's a seminar class. Okay. Just for kicks and grins. I don't know what the difference is. A seminar class meets only once a week. Yeah, okay. It's very long. Perfect. It meets for like three hours. Oh, perfect. And so you have... That's how I picture most of these classes. Good to know. Many readings to do beforehand. You have the film itself, and then you have whatever you do in class with your students. And so it can be discussion of the readings. It can be discussion of other things that you show them. But they have read the things, and then they have seen the movie. What else and what are the readings, if any that you're going to assign to those students. I'm going to go to you first, Dalton Stewart. Well, it's a good thing you prefaced this as a seminar, because i got a, whew, there's a lot of homework in this class. It's, it's only like three hours, but it, It's a job. Wait, they're going to, yeah, you're, you're going to have a time. <laughs> i got some TV shows for you to watch. i got a whole audio book you're going to have to listen to. 
it's going to be a doozy. Uh, so I'm, I keep waffling this year uh, or on this this marathon. I've gone back and forth on whether or not I was going to do horror film centric classes uh, for y'all or not. Uh, we've gone back. I, 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 I'm a backslide again. We're not doing horror this week. We're doing something different. As I mentioned, I, on this watch, was really struck with the way these two halves of the film fit together mm-hmm. because they seem, at first glance, kind of disparate. And I think, uh, Arthur, I think it was you that said the second half is Lila's, and it was in, that was interesting to me because I really feel like the second half of the movie is Norman's Yeah, yeah. because the action of the first half of the film is Marion trying to cover up a crime, and what is the second half of the film but Norman trying to cover up a crime. So this is a class that is uh, just about crimes, covering them up, uh, and the fallout of said cover-ups and what that ends up looking like looking like in people's lives. Uh, Does it look like the Trump administration? Ooh, Topical. Well, <laughs> sir, oh, I'm a simple country lawyer, but as it turns out, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll skip around. Uh, I'm on this syllabus a little bit uh, because of uh, Dustin's very, very good tee-up. Uh, but we're, we're going to focus on stories that are about crime cover-ups and, and the fallouts, both small and large, and what that can end up looking like. We're going to start with a weird place. We're going to start with Neon Genesis Evangelion. All right, let's uh, go. Because I'm, I'm still not done watching it, uh, but I, every time I sit down to watch a couple episodes of this show, it I'm so mad that I like it. I'm so furious. You're I, an anime boy now. Yeah, well, Alex, a lot's changed since you were a regular <laughs> co-host on this show. It turns out I like anime a little bit uh but the without spoiling a lot i know this show is newly on netflix and has basically been lost uh for about a generation of uh anime lovers if you weren't stealing shit uh, it was very hard to see this so i will be spoiler light that to say uh, a big center point of the plot in uh ava is uh, the cover-up of some uh, crimes against science and ethics and uh, the populace and transparency in government. Uh, and those crimes kind of become uh, the jumping-off point for the series. And again, there's many secrets abound and things that you don't need to know when the show starts, but uh, it fundamentally does become about uh, a lack of transparency in interpersonal relationships and covering up of big crimes and small crimes, uh, crimes that are, you know, affect society and crimes that affect relationships. Uh, so again, a fun place to start, especially because we are going to be talking a little bit about politics in this class. Let's start with some some fake ones. Uh, next up, A Simple Plan from Sam Raimi, uh, a film about a cover-up that I like quite a bit. It's, uh, again, with these uh, picks, I'm trying to be a little spoiler light of the supplemental material, especially Simple Plan. It's just, it's a fun, airtight, a uh, little snare drum of a thriller. Uh, and much like uh, Hitch, uh, it's kind of got Sam Raimi at an interesting point in his career. He's already kind of blown up. Uh, in terms of studio visibility. This is pre-Spider-Man Sam Raimi, though. This is right before Spider-Man, in fact. Uh, So it's him working with Billy Bob, the late, great Bill Paxton, and, oh, my God, I want to say Alan Hunt, but I don't think that's right. Son of a bitch. I can't remember the female lead in a simple plan, and I am without a phone at the moment, listeners, so you get to see me at my most vulnerable and unable to pull up casts. Bridget Fonda. Oh, thank God. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Arthur. I should remember. Fonda's so good in this movie, too. There's a, It's a, a pretty stacked cast, in fact. Uh, but again, um, this family stumbles across a crime that has been not so well covered up, and they try to cover it up themselves because they stand to profit from it. Uh, and uh, shenanigans ensue. Next up, 
on uh, the question of right-wing politics in the United States of America. Uh, we have Robert Evans' uh, War on Everyone. Robert Evans, uh, for those of you who don't know, used to work for Cracked uh, back in the days before, well, uh, before they fired everybody. Uh, Robert Evans did conflict journalism for Cracked, of all things. He went to Syria and Iraq. Uh, and uh, reported on the happenings there. Uh, has done a lot of reporting uh, as well on the history of uh, fascist movements and extremist movements and white nationalist movements in the United States. Uh, and he was able to, through some Patreon funding, put together this audiobook. It does not exist in print form, but if you go to War on Everyone, uh, not like the movie that Dustin and I watched, uh, just he and I. You remember that one, right? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Interesting I'm little still movie. Mad at you about that. Well, hey, look, we we can't all we can't always know what a movie's gonna be. I like be. Michael Pena. Pena's good. I like Skarsgård. Anyway, that's not what this is about. War on Everyone is a history of uh, fascism in America, starting from its very early roots, right around the time of the American Nazi Party, uh, going up to the ways in which uh, works like the Turner Diaries got disseminated through gun shows uh, and ended up in the hands of folks like Timothy McVeigh and the ways in which these movements actively decentralized, Spoiler actively. Alert. He's a bad guy. Yeah, not a good dude, especially for my neck of the woods, partner. Uh, and uh, the ways in which the these groups actively decentralized and covered up their ideologies and their existence by moving on to, you guessed it, the World Wide Web. One thing they don't talk about, the guy that uh, wrote the Turner Diaries uh, and some of the cats, that, like the Order, stealing a bunch of money uh, so they could fund their, uh, their gun running and uh, their bank jobs. Um, they also bought a lot of Apple II computers, it turns out. So, lots of good information uh, about the ways in which uh, extremism Wait, is. Yeah, I'll tell you all about it later. But there's not enough I time. I had an Apple II computer. If you want to take the, if you want to take the class, Dustin, you'll have to get with the bursar's office. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to speak the registrar right away. So that is Robert Ever Evans' War on Everyone. Really, really interesting stuff. I can't recommend it highly enough. Next up, uh, we will continue uh, talks about American politics with Sheriff of Babylon, the comic by Tom King and Mitch Gurrens. Uh, it is a little film. I, I think I've talked about it recently on the podcast before, maybe on a, a Patreon episode. Uh, Sheriff of Babylon is uh, loosely inspired and adapted from Tom King's time working for the CIA uh, in Iraq. Uh, a time that, you know, he had a hard time unpacking uh, and making peace with, and in part, as part of that, wrote this comic that, uh, if I remember right, is dedicated to his child uh, in the foreword uh, in terms of trying to, hey, Dad's never going to be able to tell you all the things that happened, but it was bad, and this is my attempt. And it's a really, really great book uh, that... Uh, Talks about how hard and e how hard it is to solve a murder in a war zone, especially if somebody has covered up the murder, uh, and especially if nobody wants to talk about the cover up. So that is Sheriff of Babylon, uh, and last but certainly not least, uh, we want to pivot back to uh, directors of renown working in the studio system, making weird, invasive, uh, and downright mean thrillers. It is David Fincher's Gone Girl, uh, a film about many crimes and many cover ups of those crimes. And is just about as uh, misanthropic a movie as Psycho, I would say. Um, Correct. So that is the class. It is stories about covering up crime. I don't have a snappy title. Uh, oh, yes, I do. Hold on. It's What's in a Cover-Up? That is the class. Thank you. So I just found <laughs> War on Everyone for free on Overdrive, so I'm not yeah. going to take your class. But otherwise, <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Sorry, it's totally free. I should have mentioned that. Uh, war on Everyone is totally free if you You're go to war on everyone.com. Yeah, sorry. It is out there in the wild. 
you can watch it or listen to it with commentary on the podcast Behind the Bastards, or if you just want the uh, text itself, uh, just go to at waroneveryone.com. Sorry Wait, about that. So a podcast with like a commentary? Wait, an audiobook with a commentary track? So, Do they pause it and then like, no, they talk about he it? He has uh, his friends on who are frequent co-hosts, uh, some other former Cracked contributors, uh, Katie Stoll and Cody Johnson, who he works with. Uh, they come on and basically listen to him read the audiobook and react to it. And it's quite fun. Interesting. Nice. So, yeah, you can consume huh. it uh, that way if you want to go to. That's uh, uh, Behind the Bastards podcast. You that can find seems it there. better than spending three hours with Dalton, so I'm going to probably do that. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> I love you very much. That was excellent, actually, Dalton. I appreciate it very much. Um, Alex. Yo. So, hey, teach this class to me. All right. So the, my class is going to take a totally different spin than Dalton's because that was a pretty unique spin. So Thank you. applause. Good. Um, but the first thing I would like to do, because I'm always going to recommend Vertigo. Vertigo is my favorite Alfred Hitchcock film of all time. Um, it's got the Hitchcock blondes. It's got the big twisty twists. It's got all the crazy stuff that you know you're going to get in with the Hitchcock film. And it does it all to exquisite perfection and of course um of course we got that color element that's way you know different than psycho but but the tones and and the enriching tones and the shadows and all of that uh just beautiful i'm reading a book right now actually it's the so i'm actually so i teach vertigo but then i'd also teach alongside it vertigo a making of a hitchcock classic uh which is by dan odd odley odler it has a foreword by Martin Scorsese. I'm reading that right now. Um, it's funny that we just happened to do Hitchcock in the middle of me reading about this. So he- hearing about like the comparisons, of course, to um, Vera Miles and then Kim Novak and he- seeing this cadre of Hitchcock blondes he's talking about, uh, the casting choices for Vertigo, the casting choices for Psycho. So all of this is kind of brought to a head within um, this particular book and it's all talked about together. And just like the idea that you can have this film where it is kind of within two halves. You have these two different stories that are all tied together with this overarching narrative ribbon, but they're still feeling self-contained with this one big plot element that happens and you're like, where could it possibly go from here? And then it still goes. So it's Hitchcock at its, his finest. Um, I would go, go to bat for uh vertigo over psycho any day, but of course they, it's hard to, it's hard to pick your favorite child, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then it's uh, really easy. <laughs> <laughs> really? You've got three. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's harder to pick his favorite movie. That's right. That oh, seems right. more, <laughs> that seems more apt. <laughs> oh boys i'm so sorry if you ever listen to this um, i'm really sorry about your father have they started yet at this point um i think they listen sometimes they also they don't care they piece, don't yeah it's, that's it's dumb shit their dad makes they yeah care. yeah yeah that's funny this is really what's hurting us there are ticket to the zoomer market and dustin's <laughs> fucking it up for us and i'm mad about it because i really want to keep relating to the yeah, youth print off some business cards or something to give to him yeah i have a stack of my family ch- i changed backpacks the other day oh, and i found so many business cards <laughs> from back in the day i should probably like start give, handing them out give them to yeah. people i leave them in fishbowls a lot <laughs> free the- lunch yeah, you know, what? forget the back, forget the cards. I found stickers too. The the Stranger oh, yeah. Things stickers. Yeah. Remember the Stranger oh, Things stickers? Oh man, I found a bunch of them. I have. A did bunch you make of those, those Alex? I I don't know. I yeah, you did. made them, didn't you? I think you did. I, yeah, I made one of the sets. Of you stickers. made the Stranger Things sticker, right? I, I think I did. I guess. I think I, you did. Cool. 
Sweet. <laughs> that was a long time ago. That was a ago. long time ago. I'm going to give you 100% of the credit. I'll take it. Because it denies Arthur credit. That's right. Wait. Oh, no. <laughs> I do enough. I'm going to keep teaching this class if you don't mind. Yeah, okay. I, okay. I would very much like you to continue. All right. right and ahead, then the other... Fuckers. So that's Vertigo. That's its own, like semester right the other the other half of the semester <laughs> the other the other semester is basically films that i would teach films it doesn't really matter that if you know the twist oh, so um fight club there's a lot of similarities between psycho and fight club um it's got it's got the it, the mind fuckery it's got the psychological issues and then of course it's got the did this per- perhaps make a problematic generation of people in terms of how they watch film? All these questions come up, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we've got, uh, and of course by an auteur director. So that's, there's some nice par- parallels there, but then in that kind of cadre of films that I, that I argue doesn't matter if you know the twist because they're excellent. Uh, Planet of the Apes also mm. doesn't matter nice. if you know the twist. Yep. Um, I went into it actually. I wa- I was spoiled by it by listening to a podcast uh, to Good Trash. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I ever told that. No um, kidding. But because uh, I was doing some work for the Patreon and I needed to listen to the episode, yeah. and, and then I was like, oh shit. But then I watched it. I'm like, oh, that didn't matter. That oh, I it still that. works. Yeah, it yeah. still works completely. There you um, go. And then um, another one is it's probably the only Shyamalan movie I'll stand by. But um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get to Dustin's feelings about being stabbed later, which I assume six cents. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, it is six cents. That's the that's the one that I stand by. I can't. I I don't like Unbreakable, guys. I'm sorry. Oh, I don't either. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I didn't he know. He doesn't either. I, he's a big signs guy. Was... He's a huge oh, signs sorry. guy. Okay, cool. I'm, a, I'm a real The Village defender. Oh, I love The Village. <laughs> I'm with too. Alex. You're with Alex. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, both of you, you villain, you brute, you Judas I mean, it's priests. one that I you, you can stand with confidence. It's like, yeah. it's, you do, and you don't need to, you, the twist, oh, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's important. But I mean, yeah. it doesn't ruin the experience. Like, no. uh, whereas if you compare compare later Shyamalan movies, you know, Split, that whole movie anchored on knowing the twist. So, anyway, those uh, those would be the films that I would teach on film studies core syllabus. Excellent, I appreciate that very much. Hey, Arthur, what class are you teaching, and what are you going to do with a uh, psycho? I'm going to do everything I can with it. Uh, I'm going to set the groundwork for this kind of period, though, and I want to go back to 1955 with H.G. Clouseau's. Uh, uh, Diaboliques. Oh, nice. Um, Diaboliques is a story that Hitchcock wanted to adapt, but yeah. Cluzo beat him to it. Uh, and it has that shocking, suspenseful ending. Movie. He did. Um, he, uh, I, I think he sets up that shocking twist ending that, that Hitchcock really wanted. And, and he comes to that in Vertigo, but I think he really hits it with, with, uh, with Psycho uh, in a, a number of ways. Uh, I would also, 1960, um, when I found out these two films were made in the same year, uh, I was shocked because they are they're the perfect mates, uh, and that is Peeping Tom. It is oh, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, um, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think these two work together so well, um, just thematically, uh, trope wise. You know what they're doing Harvard with the genre. Of a genre to come. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're the perfect uh, pair, and it's fascinating that they would come in at the same time. So I, I would put those two with it. And I would also recommend the 7852. Uh, it's a very good documentary that is all about that shower sequence and analyzing it from a number of talking heads, a lot of celebrities, a lot of directors, filmmakers. Have you seen the, the full documentary? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because yeah, I only watched about a quarter of it. Yeah, and it's streaming on Hulu. It's really interesting. Uh, he shoots it in black and white, which is a fun little bit Yeah. Uh, as a nod back to Psycho. So that's really cool. There's a lot of reenactments. They bring in stuff about the... Uh, uh, 
purported body double who actually stood in for Janet uh, through really, the shower sequence. They got a little bit of, uh, I got to see rather, a little bit of some of the interview they did with her, yeah. and uh, it's really interesting. It is. And is it because of the side boob or what? I, th- I think the so. The body double? I can't remember. The, the full story, it's, but I think it's something about that. I imagine it's just because Jana Lee didn't want to be on set naked all day. I mean, if I had to guess, I think she's a big enough star she probably was wanted. able to not have yeah. to do that, yeah. Uh, but she never got really credit for it. Nope. Uh, and, you know, Janet got all the credit, and so it was just an interesting story to kind of hear. Um, so I, I would go there. And then I'd talk a little intertextuality and horror. Um, in, in Psycho, obviously, we have Janet Lee, and we have a character named Sam Loomis. Uh, we fast forward to 1978, and we got to do John Carpenter's Halloween, yeah, uh, starring oh the daughter, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and with uh, one Dr. Loomis, uh, which is obviously a heavy, heavy play on the Psycho. The evil is gone from this place now. <laughs> Sorry. You start talking about Loomis, all I can think about is a bunch of weird non sequiturs. Yeah, that's uh, fair. Uh, and then from there, I'm going to fast forward all the way to 96, and I'm going to do Scream. Uh, which does, uh, obviously, we have another Loomis reference with Billy Loomis, mm-hmm. uh, the boyfriend. And uh, we also have that that uh, crib uh, in killing off the A-lister uh, yeah. real early on with, with Drew, Drew Barrymore. Barrymore. Drew Barrymore's um, idea, it turns out. She yeah. had, uh, I don't know if anybody knows this, I learned it recently. She had uh, pretty early on uh, been landed the uh, Sydney Prescott role. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it was her idea to go, you know what? Nah, Janet Leamy, dude. Uh, yeah. And smart. She's a genius. And it works yeah. so well. Um so I would go, there would be my film uh, readings, and then I would probably go with something like uh, Alfred, uh, Hitchcock Revisited by Robin Wood. Uh, some essays from there yeah. uh, be some good reading. So that would be my, my class. Outstanding, outstanding. Okay, so if I'm teaching this class, I'm thinking mostly about modernism, and that's why I asked you the question that I did, Dalton, ah, gotcha. about it, um, and particularly about the concept of vernacular modernism. So uh, Marian Hansen's uh, The Mass Production of the Senses, uh, Classical Cinema, and uh, Modernism is a, a particular essay that I would pay a lot of attention to uh, for a number of reasons, notwithstanding the fact that it's going to be on my um, comprehensive exam. But uh, because that is what this film is doing. It, it is a very much uh, a, a mass-produced version of modernism. The ways in which we see that are like the travel through the uh, blinds, the random use of the inner titles, the date and time in which Loomis and, um, oh gosh, Marion Crane. I was yep. like, Janet Lee's character, I could not think of her name. Um, the way in which that's sort of like subtitled, it does not matter yep. at all. Friday, December 11th, 2.33 p.m., something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Something, something like yeah. that. And very it, specific detail. But, but, it, but it's very modernist in yeah. its approach. Yep. But it's also very, very pop culture. It's very, very mass-produced culture. And so looking at that would be a place in which I begin. And then I would then move from that to... Um, David Thompson's The Moment of Psycho. So uh, there's an essay from Hanson. The Moment of Psycho is a book. It's probably – I didn't look at it when I pulled it off my shelf or whatever uh, to prepare for this. But I want to say it's probably 140 pages long. It's really, really short. You can see Thompson interviewed in uh, 7852, as a matter of fact. I'm sure. I'm sure. And he does this sort of industrial history of just, again, all the sort of – uh, censorship offices and uh, working with the, uh, the the TV crew and working with uh, the uh, studio heads and all of those co- sort of questions about constructing this film um, Hitchcock, um, this film Psycho, sorry. Um, and so looking at that and sort of examining it in its historical concept, 
as a industrial product that does sort of move itself towards something high art, especially this sort of Eisensteinian moment, which is the the shower scene. And so that is what I want to sort just of just call the shower scene and the Eisensteinian moment. Well, is it, it is, yeah. yeah it's well, just okay. a very pretty way to no, call yeah. it a montage. Yeah, well, makes I mean, you sound real smart. Well, it's, it's a very specific it's dialectic. It sounds like a man of letters. It ain't karate. That's all. It ain't karate kid montage. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> just, yeah, it's Soviet montage. I yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a very different kind. Yeah. Um, and so it, so doing that in something that is very much popular cinema. Now, my additional watchings would be to include 1990s. Psycho for yeah. the awakening, the beginning, the the beginning, the beginning, the the the, the quickening, <laughs> the beginning of the awakening, yeah, the, the awakening. Um, <laughs> Stop. And so uh, I'm going to look at that particular film because again, Tony Perkins' performance is amazing, and it puts all of the uh, psychoanalytic theory. It really sort of makes it explicit, and then at the same time turns it on its head mm-hmm. in a way that's really... I, I rewatched it for, for preparation for the show, and I gotta tell you guys, Psycho 4 holds up, y'all. Well, it doesn't hurt that, I mean, it's Anthony Perkins and CCH Pounder uh, basically doing a two-hander for the majority of the modern-day scenes. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it is very much uh, a closed-box uh, TV movie, which makes sense for Psycho being filmed by a TV crew. Yeah, And so it does a lot of that sort of work. It doesn't have the sort of high art um, aspirations of Psycho in terms of modernism, but it absolutely does the referentiality um, following Frederick Jameson of post-modernity. And so it begins to sort of be this question of what we do afterward. The last thing I would add uh, to this is Gus Van Zandt's Psycho remake, shot for shot um, remake starring Vince Vaughn. and um, Score adapted by Danny Elfman. And Ellen's girlfriend. I forget her name now. How dare you? Portia de Rossi? No, Hesh. The other, the earlier Anne one, Hesh. Anne Hesh. Yeah, her, Anne Hesh and her dated uh, the 90s? At the time, actually. At the right time. At the time when the movie was made, yeah. yeah. Uh, but good pull on Portia de Rossi, though. That is a yeah. very good pull. Um, but anyway, um, looking at that and the post-modernity of that in conversation with, with the modernity of Hitchcock Isn't itself. Isn't Vigo the Sam Lemus character? Vigo is the Sam Lewis character. Who plays Arbogast in that? Arbogast. Oh, I know. I'm just quizzing you now, but I memory does not serve. Um, I do know the really, really disgusting actor guy from Mulholland Drive plays the guy who um, gives them or the money is stolen from by Marion Crane, which is great. Awesome. In In a very excellent process shot that looks so dated and 50s in high Technicolor. It's amazing. So um, that's fun. You're not the only defender of uh, Van Sant's Psycho that's out there. There's a couple of you. Well, because it, we're right, um, and that's why, <laughs> we, <laughs> that's why we keep doing it. Um, the bits that are added are unnecessary. I would absolutely add that Vince Vaughn masturbating per, per se. Yeah. But that that being said, you don't need that. Yeah. No. You, is this is this news to you? Did you not know about this? I'm no. so sorry. I'm so sorry. You'd got you'd got to go most of your life without knowing this. Yeah. They. they I mean, that makes sense with yeah. the bird. The beep people and yeah, the, they yeah. they make the uh, that scene the implication of that scene explicit in the remake. That's one of the like two changes they have. Well, that's silly. Yeah. Lastly, in terms of reading, though, you cannot talk about Hitchcock and modernism and just the sort of experience of filmmaking without looking at Laura Mulvey's uh, seminal essay um, on uh, the pleasures of narrative cinema, and so that would also be added as well. And so uh, it'd be a good time, I would hope, um, if you were in my class. So there you go, dear listener. Um, those are our thoughts regarding Hitchcock or, um, and uh, Psycho as a uh, film studies course. We're going to move on, though. And now 
It's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. And we're back. I saved my throat. And here we go. Uh, so, analysis points with Psycho. God. Yeah, because there's so little for us to cover. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so well, it's much production. I think is where you start. So, okay, yeah. let's start with production. Yeah, because yeah, so much ink's been spilled. Let's start with production. Go ahead, Arthur. Well, I, I think the interesting question here, the thing I kept pondering is, you know, how does you know does this happen today? Can you take a TV crew today and make a movie like this today? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Because they've been doing it. Yeah, I. That's what I'm saying, but it yeah. won't have the same impact. I think our, because uh, yeah, it's a different thing. They they're yeah. so transmutable now. They yeah, go back the and film forth budgets, all the, time. the yeah. shooting on location. Oh, it's like not a big deal. Yeah, I hear uh, what you're saying. I see. Yeah, or yeah, absolutely right. And I also don't think you know we don't have. I mean, do we have celebrities now that you could off and have that kind of impact? I mean, there are a few. Can you kill well. Dwayne the Rock Johnson the first? I mean, it would have to be. I was trying to think. And of they, do, I mean, they do that in the other guys, right? They do it in the other guys. They do uh, executive decision with Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal was like a big part of the marketing, and they ice him like 15 minutes in. Uh, I, I thought about doing this as, as my course. I was trying to think of films that I'd got this in Scream, basically, and I, I was like, eh, I don't want to talk about executive so, decision. So, so here's the question, though. But Arthur's right. I, I can't think of somebody that's big enough to. Janet Lee makes that. it in a, a solid half hour of a 90 minute movie, right? 48 minutes, I checked. 48 yeah, minutes. So, so, yeah. so solidly halfway through a 90 yeah. minute movie. Yeah. Drew Barrymore dies in the first 10. Yeah. So if you do this move, do we have examples of somebody lasting that long who's an A-lister? Again, executive decision is the only other one I can think of because it's it's not late, Steven Skull. This is like post-Under Siege, pre-exit wounds. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's still the, 90s. It's very still, specific yeah. period. It's a, well, look, he's only gone 10 years-ish. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's a fucking big name when this movie comes out and, and I think 96, 97, whenever that film comes out. So it's, it's a big name to have again, Kurt Russell, obviously still bigger, but on, you know, it's post tombstone. He's kind of on his way out. Uh, but yeah, I can't, nothing like post 99. I can't think of a, a bait and switch where you think, uh, Maybe Denzel in what movie? Just, I was saying in general, like... I mean, could you do oh, it to Denzel? Yeah. Could, you could, you, do it? could you do it to, to, to Dwayne yeah. The Rock Johnson? To me, the, the one I thought about the most, because of his clout and his noted ego mm. for taking over a movie and a production, mm -hmm. is Will Smith. Oh, yeah, you know, that's okay. That's really about as far as I could go, because he's the type that doesn't want to give up that spotlight. Yeah. I think I think you could you could hide. I, I think everybody would assume Will Smith was your star. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of it, though, Arthur. Like, so... Eh, especially studio films, are so scrutinized right now, uh, the production of them, that I, I don't know that you get all the way to to screening with, without somebody finding out. Um, comparison, so this will help contextually. How how many stars were dimmed between, you know, Janet Lee and then the rest of the cast? Like, the stair step down the rest of the thing and then and, you know. Oh, Janet Lee was definitely Dwayne the Rock Johnson and everybody else was like Dana Carvey. Okay. Yeah, Perkins is like the the next biggest and I again like I mean, but he's not up and coming. He's not a Yeah, he's a yeah. young guy. He does Vera Miles is up and coming. She's like the next big thing, maybe. Well, I mean they're B C question list, probably. Yeah, but Perkins okay. had worked with like um oh god, who's it's not important. He'd worked with some big names. Like he was a theater guy that was kind of on the come up. Uh but yeah, Gina Leon for sure. I didn't I don't our guess. I've never seen him in any Perkins hadn't worked with Orson Welles yet. Okay. I think. No, maybe he did. Um I have to look up when the trials um um, screening day was, but 
very close to uh, Psycho Perkinsworth with Wells. But. Yeah. Well, because the reason why I asked is because I don't, I honestly don't think the the exact way in which we did this, where it's like, okay, we have our Dwayne the Rock, the Rock Johnson, and then we have, I don't know, like Cody from no, Corey from Corey's in the House, like from the Disney Channel, like yeah. as his B, C, D yeah. players. Like, I don't think we'd ever be able to do something like that. But if it was like a double build, top build, someone die after forty. And then the other person carry it. I don't think it's ever going to be A plus plus and then D C G E. Yeah, I, I can't. I uh, yeah, I think you got it, man. I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's doable, especially just in the the modern uh, with the the currently very in shift uh, way we're making studio films. Yeah, I just don't. I don't know. With the exception, I of like the, to imagine of it. the Drew Barrymore agreement, which would yeah, be sure. like, I'll be in the first fifty minutes of the movie, and then it's gonna be Nev Campbell's movie. Yeah, who is a TV star at that point. Yeah, I don't think you get further than twenty minutes max. Yeah, because so, just... then it's like a week of shoot. I mean, yeah. three days of shooting or something, yeah. and you know, get a big fat check for three days. So um, let's do more things with analysis. Let's talk about the pleasures of looking, visual <laughs> pleasures in narrative cinema, all yeah. Laura Mulvey. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, her analysis uh, mostly is based on the film Rear Window, uh, which we may or may not know um, at, together around the table. But um, we definitely see the scopophilia, the love of looking in this movie with the use of the peepholes, and which, of course, is revisited in Cycle 4. Uh, if you happen to have seen it, there are peepholes in the house as well. Mm-hmm. And um, Norman watches his mama do things. Um, nonetheless. Checks out. It's a weird movie. It is a weird movie. But that being said, this is part of what I keep thinking about is the culpability of the audience in Scopophilia. That there is this sort of voyeurism that is being um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, challenged. Mm-hmm. That, that is being described as something that is untoward, that is unacceptable on the part of Norman Bates. Yet we keep watching him watching. And we keep wanting to be watching. And I want to ask the question is, what is our responsibility as viewers? Because I do think this is the fundamental question of all of the sort of political and social analyses of the slasher film is, to what extent are we responsible for the act of watching and then whatever happens after that? Well, we're also recording this the the Monday after Joker's opening weekend. Correct. So, yeah, it's, it's on my mind. Yeah, it's 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 on the, the buzz of uh, film, film-going minds for sure. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, just, yeah, no, I, I just wanted to, look, this isn't going to go out for a couple of weeks. So I just want to contextualize for the listener that, yeah, I mean, this is all anybody's been talking about for like two weeks now. Yeah. Well, one thing, I mean, we know kind of Hitchcock's attitude uh, towards it. I mean, I think it's pretty in like that it's literal text. He moves a portrait of the raping of Persephone by Hades, like that Grecian, because it's like this naked woman with these like either satyrs or Whoa. like diabolical figures and he moves it aside. I mean, it's very like Correct. text, you yeah. know, like my dumb ass, not looking at the painting I've seen <laughs> yeah. this movie like five times. <laughs> it's yeah. So, I mean, we know what Hitchcock thinks of us also looking whenever it frames through the, the people. Um, but then, then we also then have to grapple with the question ourselves is like, what does that mean for each and every single one of us? 
It's it's interesting, right? Because you know Hitchcock's notoriously a dirty little pervert. Uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of people that come in his wake. I'm specifically right now thinking. I don't want to tip my hand too much, but there's a, a film we'll be talking about next week that deals with this a little bit. But uh, there's also you know Michael uh, Hanukkah's film uh, Funny Games, uh, who goes ahead and remakes it for American audiences because nobody no American saw his French version. He was like, damn it, I made this movie for Americans. <laughs> Uh, so I mean, you know, that is a film all about implicating the viewer in, in watching an untoward affair and watching brutality and reveling in, in violence against uh, innocent people. And uh, I always think, go fuck yourself <laughs> to any filmmaker who wants to. And again, I think we as the audience, we should be examining this about ourselves. Absolutely. But I think that there is this uh, filmmakers sometimes and it definitely seems to be a, a strain and. Male filmmakers like to tut tut at the audience for uh, liking the thing they made. It's like just like the thing that you made, you little perv. <laughs> you made it. Be proud of it. It's okay that you know you might have to have gone to weird places to access this story, but just put the thing out there. Uh, so I don't like I don't like being tut tutted at uh, by the person that made the thing that I'm watching. It always feels disingenuous to me. But uh, I think you know, especially Funny Games, a film that I love a lot. I think in that film it works a little bit better for me because there is a certain amount of playfulness to it. It's uh, Michael Haneke is not tut tutting at you, but he is definitely messing with you, and that's a different thing entirely, uh, for my money anyway. Um, but uh, I am always suspicious uh, of a film that I think is um, preaching at me too much about how I should be implicated in what is going on screen. Uh, that said, I think there there is a sweet spot, right? I'm not like out hand writing off that that idea or that 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 exploration on film uh, but i'm suspicious of it i guess is, is mm. my my take i don't know that i read it as hitchcock tutting so much yeah and then this this film I maybe was, not be might be the best i'm just kind of speaking broadly but yeah yeah root window more so but mm, yeah yeah i mean he I, I i feel like yes he's making us complicit but i think he's wanting us to because that's the titillation right is oh, what would it be like if i committed a murder yeah and i mean that's the question presented and i think that's the interesting dichotomy of you know we're we're Put in Norman's shoes pretty early on when he peers through that uh, peeping hole, uh, and I think that's what makes that second structure so work so well is because now we're following his story, so we're one hundred percent in with him on this to try to cover up this crime. You said something really interesting just now, Arthur. That it made me think of a kind of a vital piece of this we haven't talked about that about yet, and that is very much, especially in nineteen sixty, but to this day. The fundamental differences between like the, the violence that we see men being a part of or being victim of, uh, and the violence we see women being victim of in film, uh, and those sure are there's overlap. Obviously, there's plenty of examples of men, uh, you know, being victims of violence where there is no uh, chance of escape or an, an absolute loss yeah, but of that's power. like in Rio Bravo. But it's pretty damn rare. Yeah, yeah exactly. And sure, we see we see women doling out violence. Uh, look, I mean, I can just point out Charlie's Theron's filmography and go see. Yeah, but you know, the, again, the if we're going to talk about averages, th there is a pretty clear line of delineation uh, between what we can expect in film violence uh, and the yeah. ways in which it's gendered. Uh, yeah. and there's something to that. And there's and there's always a certain amount and like of there's an intimacy when it comes to stabbing as opposed and to strangling as opposed to 
st- uh, gunshot or poison, which, you know, everyone cites poison as like the woman's, you know, murder weapon. Uh, in, Fun you fact, know, Norman poisons his mother in Psycho 4. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, right. And so the idea that, you know, you always think of like American Psycho, you know, the coat hanger sequence when, while they're, you know, sleeping together. Yeah, I know. Ugh. It gets me every time. Um, but it's just like the the intimacy of it's it's interesting to think that men think either way about penetration when it comes to it's either the sexual act or I cannot claim you so I will penetrate you with violence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, taking it to Halloween, I think that's the interesting thing because, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis can't do anything as Michael until she's able to penetrate him with that knife. Yeah. And so I think that kind of brings that full circle there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, again, sort of the implication and sort of our own sort of, you know, shared guilt uh, regarding those kinds of crimes. I think it's important to think about. Uh, Another thing to think about regarding, like, a retrospective on – a retrospective, excuse me, on um, Hitchcock is the idea – well, we're in a moment where there's cancel culture, where (laughs) um, (laughs) filmmakers – Not a real thing. Oh, okay. I just had to make a big jerk off motion so everybody listening knew that we're yeah okay we'll no it's a hashtag on it's Twitter a buzz, it's a real it's thing it's a buzzword okay yeah. okay well that being said I mean Woody Allen has been canceled I mean for the most part I mean he had a movie come out last year did, did he? you know exactly no that's my Who? point <laughs> yeah but Louis C K also just got a standing ovation at a comedy festival okay. so I mean Roman so, Polanski so, just won an award there, yeah there, there there's no way- justice nothing bad happens to rich people there ever. are ways in and out is what I want to say sure. yeah. and uh, but I would say a nominee for cancellation is Alfred Hitchcock it's Alfred He's Hitchcock especially pervert, the- considering his treatment of Vera Miles and then later to yeah so what do we do with uh, a guy like Sir Alfred Hitchcock in the 21st century, if we're going to talk about movies, do we talk about Psycho? I mean, I just want to ask the question. Well, it's, you know, I, I said that at the start of the show, right? Like, I, I wanted to find more mean things to say about Psycho, but I I think even the nature of the violence against women, the observations of uh, the voyeurism of women is, like, still for really, I mean, yeah, sure, it's it's shocking for 1960, but it's, Pretty damn tasteful, tame. It's it's creepy in the way it's supposed to be creepy. Uh, you were supposed to be unsettled by it, but you know, I I don't know. We just I keep calling him a little pervert and a scuzzy little scumbag. But God, what power does that have? We're still spending uh, you know an hour and a half here filling the internet with more talk about Alfred Hitchcock. I don't know. I think Alfred has a lot in common with Norman, though. I mean, the mother issues. I I, I think the way he you know views women in the women form. And I think it's a very telling scene early on when uh, in, in the office uh, at the beginning, uh, the, the, the oil baron or whatever he is, he comes in and he gives the money to Mary and he's flirting with Mary and, you know, and uh, the, the receptionist comes over who is Hitch's daughter. Uh, oh yeah. Gets to come over. It's Hitch's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And he, she says, Oh, he must've saw my ring. No, he was, yeah, he the movie actively and... dunks on her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think there's a lot of those connections. I mean, Alf, I mean, when you, when you talk about tour theory, I mean, few directors and Hitch is up there, right? Because he has so much control over everything happening. Um, that I I I think it is. Uh, we talked Polanski and we talked Chinatown earlier this year, which is very hard because if we weigh crimes, right? Uh, you know, Hitch was a kind of a creep. He was really mean, but he never, as far as we know. Uh, but here's, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. If some, if we, if some, I've seen those tomorrow, casting tapes of Tippi Hedren. <laughs> Honestly, I'd be surprised if you got an erection. But really, that's a whole other conversation. I think that's part of it. Yeah, yeah I, there's okay. a lot of wish fulfillment in his films. I mean, mm. 
And so I, I think that frustration that Perkins feels, that or Bates feels, is very reflective of, of mm. Hitch himself. Huh. Huh. Yeah. A nuanced read of Hitch in this movie. Uh, well, then it helps. I know you, Arthur and Dustin are both quite well read on Hitch, and it sounds like yeah. Alex is uh, well on her well, way as well. It's, he's kind of a blind spot for me and uh, I mean, outside of the, this in Vertigo. It's really the thing he keeps coming back to. We talked Rear Window. I mean, a, a film about a man <laughs> observing yeah. everything. You know, that's very much his meta film. And, and even Vertigo, where he's seeing the blonde and he's remaking her in the image that he wants her to make is the, the, the take he would have through his career as he reforms all of these Hitchcock blondes into into the image that he wants to present. And so, I mean, uh, Hitch is very in his movies. Yeah. I can't remember. It, it talks about it in the Vertigo book, but I can't remember which of our blonde co-stars, if it was uh, Jamie or Vera. I think it was Vera was almost cast. She was the first casting choice for yeah. Vertigo. And then something happened and then this it was oh, like Vera miles was going to be in vertigo yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and then it's, kim novak instead yeah, yeah exactly so it's the interchange of <laughs> good choice the interchangeability of not to say that you know novak and you know they're all interchangeable but there is a certain extent that hitchcock blonde for hitchcock is interchangeable Peter yeah. bergman yeah yes and grace kelly grace kelly yeah mm-hmm. wanted to be a princess yeah, I, I'm curious. You, you're all making a case for Hitch as at least somewhat self-aware as a filmmaker, a guy that seems at least relatively self-aware of, you know, not liking himself a whole lot. But you know, that doesn't always like make somebody a better person. Oh no, I don't. I'm think just so. I'm, again. I think we're doing what we can uh, to to bring it back to Dustin's initial question. All we can do is wrestle with it and acknowledge the the facts as we know them, right? I mean, I, I think it's the same conversation we have with Kubrick right now. Yeah. You know, people don't know what to do with Kubrick because Kubrick was a a hole on set, right? Yeah. Oh, an absolute monster. Yeah. Yeah. The way he tortured Shelley Duvall in The Shining and this need for perfection was, you know, much different type of. Uh, assault and then what hitch did but it was in a similar vein and i yeah. think we'd have the same conversations with hitch that we would kubrick if they were both alive and today. it's all about these like extracting these performances from actresses by like breaking them first like they don't know how to do their fucking job yeah it doesn't yeah. do it with the male it's actors literal <laughs> micromanagement of your employee yeah, yeah. i mean it comes back you've already brought up joker and i hate to keep circling back to it but it's this idea of you know joaquin is off isolating himself and losing 100 pounds and doing all this mental torture to get into role and somebody mentioned you know tony collette was like how did you get into the headspace for you know hereditary she's like oh i mean i'm an actress i just did it so you walk in there and you do it right so yeah. i mean uh, it's times like these i like to remind everyone of the fun anecdote about Lawrence olivier and dustin hoffman on the set of marathon man Dustin Hoffman, uh, and this is a somewhat apocryphal tale. I'll just tell the version that became legend. I'll tell the version that became legend. Uh, Hoffman's all looks like he's been on a bender for days because the character's supposed to have been awake for days. And uh, Laurence Olivier is like, "Why do you look like shit?" Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to get to the character, you know, method, blah blah. Try acting, darling. It's easier. (laughs) (laughs) All we're talking about, though, I I think we've kind of accidentally gotten to, I'm glad Arthur brought up uh, Hitch, or uh, I'm glad Arthur brought up Joker, but more specifically, I'm glad you brought up uh, Kubrick, uh, because it's the lionization. It's the canonization of these guys who are known bad employers that continues the deification of of auteurship as, you know, the director as the sole authority on a film, and just makes making movies not a fun place to be for people and it you know leads to things like david o russell yelling at um oh my god um shit J-Lo? uh no uh i heart huckabees um dustin hoffman and um oh my god 
Well, this is what happens when I can't refer to IMDb while we're talking. Sorry, uh, listeners. You know the story. Everybody's heard this story. Uh, David O. Russell, and there is, in fact, a little bit of it all in the DVD. Uh, David O. Russell uh, got into it. She's on Frankie and Grace. Uh, Why can I not think of this actress's name? One of the greats. Naomi Watts? No. uh, Older. Uh, Isabel Hubert? Little deeper in the Lily Tomlin. There we go. Thank you. Sorry, everybody. We got there. Mean to Lily Tomlin? He was... Dude, him and Lily Tomlin got into a shouting match. Oh. He was a dickhead to Lily Tomlin. I will never forgive this. Yeah, <laughs> this is how it happens. You know, look, and, you know, we talk about David, uh, not David Russell, that's who did the yelling. We talk about Dave Fincher and his thousand takes and what a gene. You know, sometimes just know the shot you want when you get to work and don't waste everybody's time. Uh, and, and sure, I'm, you know, everybody's got their own process for making stuff. That's not our job here. But it is important that when we start deifying people, uh, we got to remind everybody and remind ourselves that everybody's complicated and sometimes people suck. Uh, and just because they made a couple of really good movies doesn't mean you got to do it exactly the way they did it. Right. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So um, I guess the next thing I want to talk about um, regarding this film, and uh, that does move us into just why it works so damn well. I, 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 and I cannot say it any other way. It works so well. Yet, we keep talking about this tacked-on ending scene. And so, I, I mean, you know, and I want to acknowledge, um, before we get on to this uh, sort of a tag-on point to what you said, um, Hitchcock is not the only person working on this film. We've got actors and actresses. We've got Saul Bass working on the um, just the... Um, advertising campaign which yeah, is brilliant and bernard kermit uh bernard herman who is killing it as well so all of that works but let's move on though to the narrative um and the screenwriting a little bit by joseph stefano why do we always complain about the last few minutes of the movie i mean i think that's worth discussing because it seems to be the only fly in the ointment is this a common complaint from people it is common to say yeah, yeah that that sort of explanation scene in the uh, prison mm-hmm. or not the prison the the police department or whatever mm-hmm. yeah. is, is commonly said oh man i wish we hadn't had that i love how big that performance is Tell me more. I love the psychiatrist. I I, I want to hear what Arthur thinks, because, again, I, since Arthur mentioned he doesn't like it, uh, I'd like to hear more of his thoughts. And, again, I just I didn't realize this is a common complaint people have. But uh, I'll, I'll elaborate in a sec. I, my only real complaint is that it's there. I, I don't hmm. feel like that explanation is needed. I feel like it's gratuitous in a way. Correct. Really kind of undercuts a lot of what came before. I feel like in 1960 you probably needed something to get there, I know there's a lot of back and forth with the board or whoever was rating things at the time uh, about words that they want to put in there and how they use them and things of like that, you know, transvestite, transvestite and all that fun stuff. It's very offensive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so for me, it's just, it, it, so, okay, going back to Joker. Um, it's, there's this thing, I, I feel like, you know, a comedian, uh, you know, they tell you the joke and then they sit there and explain the joke. And that kills it, you know, and I, I think this kind of leads into that. I, I don't think it kills the movie, but it just kind of like we'd come to such a natural conclusion and then boom, we're getting this like 10 minute spiel, giving us all this history, giving us all this motivation, giving us all of this psychoanalysis, you know, of, of what's going on. And obviously Freud's big and especially at this time, but you know, feeding that into this is just a little too much for me. And I go back and forth. I, you know, sometimes it works better than others, but you know, for me, it's still kind of a, I, you know, I'd cut almost probably straight to that that scene of him in the the madhouse. I wouldn't even hurt a fly. Yeah. Well, as there is ethnocentrism, I think there's a little bit of chronocentrism, and when I dip into that, I'm okay with the scene, and that doesn't mean it's okay. 
By that I mean I assume a 1960s audience just doesn't get it. Yeah. And that when Norman shows up in a dress, they are flabbergasted. They are bamboozled. And they don't know what to do. It's one of those moments. There's There are a lot of moments. Like, Planet of the Apes is one. It's yeah. like, I wish I was in that audience day one. And, I, you know, Psycho's another one. And I feel yeah. like the explanation is for them. Yeah. So they can just sort of, oh, there's a thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I'm good then. Because otherwise they're going to leave the movie going, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Why, why was he wearing a dress? It also certainly reads, in, you know, maybe a... Paying lip service to a thing you know you're doing that maybe you shouldn't do, but uh, you know much has been made about Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs and the fact that they go out of the way to uh, note that Buffalo Bill is not uh, a trans person uh, and trans communities go. Uh, you can go back and read. He's stuff atypical for sure. You can go back and read the stuff that was written at the time, but it didn't make anybody feel better. It's like okay, cool. Like you knew what you were doing was gonna make a lot of people feel unsafe in the world. Uh, still a kick-ass fucking movie. I, you know, uh, for nineteen sixty, this feels pretty even-handed, as Dustin has said. Like, uh, definitely feels like uh, somebody. Uh, I don't know anything about our screenwriter who returned for four, but at the very least, him or the uh, novelist had the foresight to write with some nuance about Norman's condition. And I think there's something. Oh, admirable about that. Again, as Arthur pointed out, not just uh, Freud, but the psychoanalysis is getting pretty big in America in the 1960s. Uh, so it's it makes a lot of sense to have a psychiatrist here at the end of the film, I feel like. Because, first of all, again, I love that performance. The guy goes mm-hmm. real big, and uh, he seems so excited mm-hmm. to uh, be the smartest person in the room, which is just, this guy seems like a piece of shit. But uh, <laughs> it's a really, I, he just mugs so hard. Uh, and I get as soon as Arthur said he didn't like, he's like, yeah, that makes sense because the, the performance is out of sync with the rest of the movie. But something about it really worked for me because it feels like Hitch. It feels like his, he's a very jowly actor. Uh, <laughs> he's got big lips and he's just like, uh, yeah, I'm here to tell you everything that happened. And aren't I smarter than everyone? It looks a bit like Bergnine. Oh, yeah. OK. I wonder if he's the same actor they get to come back to be the psychologist on Psycho 4. I we, didn't look that we'll up. We'll have to go find out. Mm. Yeah, I think that there could have been, I mean, if it, if you needed it for the 1960s audience, cool, but it could have been less. There, We could have had some ambiguity. Maybe maybe the psychiatrist gives an explanation, and there could have been, like, I was imagining, it's like, okay, what if you would cut from, you know, the last reasonable place to, you know, I wouldn't have to fly or whatever. And I think it could read to some audience that he was being possessed by the spirit of his dead mother. Mm. And so that could have been some interesting ambiguity. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. uh, you know, the house and everything. Mm. And so instead of, like, it... So it it could have been that that whole... um, the whole idea that it's like, is this the supernatural? Is this just a figment of the mind? But then at the end of the day, what's the difference when it's still an affliction to somebody, you know, it, mm. being trapped within their own head? Um, so I, I could have appreciated a little more even handedness and some additional, you know, just any ambiguity there. Because it was basically spelled out, you know, with a chalkboard and a laser pointer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Does it come across as very, uh, all right, now A's? Yeah, it's it's very yeah. much a, a drawing. And I think Dustin's right to, to call it a chronocentric because it yeah. does feel very much of, 
mainstream American audiences are probably going to lose their mind and have well, no idea. You're assuming that, but I don't I really don't. I know. think you might be right yeah. though. I think you're. I, I I think your guess is a good one, yeah. I, and you're right. We could all all very well be incorrect, but I think it's a good guess. At any rate, so okay, this movie is of course very seminal in the work of the slasher film and the American obsession with all things slasher. This film is based on Ernest, Bl- not Ernest Bloch. Um, what is Bloch? Yeah, Ernest Borgnine. No. What's Blosh's Ed first Gein. name? Oh. The, the Rosie Edging book. Um, oh, I don't know. Oh. Psycho. The, the, the novel upon which, not oh. novel, but at a sort of historical account of Ed Gein, um, famously and interestingly in Psycho 4, when um, he gives a pseudonym to the radio call and show, he calls himself Ed. Oh, um, yeah. wow. I That's l- fun. I love that tip of the hat uh, for that film. But um, so we see this come up again in Silence of the Lambs, as we've already mentioned, also in Texas Chainsaw yep. Massacre. And, Ed uh, Gein, arguably one of the most important figures of the 20th century. American Horror Story Season 2. <laughs> and Mindhunter as a plot contrivance all the way through. Through. And I wanted to just think about the serial killer itself. You're thinking of BTK. We'll talk more later. Well, uh, I, was, I was. Oh, I guess I was just thinking. I think about he's just talking serial killers. Serial in general. killers in general. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And it's I want to talk crime. about the beginnings of those things which are true crime, which sort of find their founding in Psycho, which again finds a cinematic genesis in the slasher film. But also in this sort of true crime obsession and America's obsession, specifically with the serial killer, either fictional or factual. Well, there's a lot also, and, and this this ties into a thing that I, I was going to want to bring up later anyway, but this is a good time to bring it up. The highway. The highway is a big deal. Uh, it's a big plot point in this film, but it is a fundamental reshaping of uh, life in the continental United States. Uh, and leads to uh, cats like Henry Lee Lucas, who are just drifter murders, uh, and all of the myriad serial killers. Wernos would be an example. And as well, well as about to come to the California Highway. I mean, you have like four active serial killers uh, around uh, California highways in the 1970s. I mean, the highway introduces a a means and ease of access to uh, predators in the United States that just simply did not exist prior to you know the the mid to late 60s. Uh, so it's it's a colossal reshaping of the American psyche taking on taking place throughout the 1960s, obviously. But the highways are a big deal, and uh, I think the ability to commit murders and go to another town and ghost and become a different person is something that happens throughout the 30s, uh, you know, with the Dust Bowl, but throughout the next several decades and the changes of uh, modern transportation, I, I think it. It changes the the ways in which murders are taking place in the country, which adds to what you're talking about, Dustin, which more killers means more obsession, right? Right. I mean, they existed up until this point, but there there was a weird way in which uh, the United States especially, we became obsessed with this. We were looking for these kinds of stories, either, again, oh, we truthful, still are, right? truthful yeah. accounts or fictional. Yeah. I, I think there's obviously this existential dread, and especially maybe post-Vietnam, we have the 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 fear at home right the the danger that walks and and things like that but i also think it undercuts the american dream in a way and throws a wrench into that fantasy mm. you know the suburbs aren't what we always thought they were the the past the glory aren't always what we thought they are there's these new hidden figures and i th- i think that's kind of what is interesting about this you know i don't i don't know what draws me to true crime other than just pure fascination with how these things work and how these people work. And well, there's a weird way in which we romanticize the serial killer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm, but sure. unlike, say, the mass shooter, which is a different form of the same. I mean, in terms of body counts, similar kind of violence. 
I think we fetishize mass violence, period. I think we really do. Uh, I think we do it in different ways, but I think our mm-hmm. culture is obsessed with mass violence. I mean, yeah. how many fucking times have you seen the Twin Towers go down? How many times have you watched 3,000 people fucking gone Yeah, and not thought of it? Just at all for mo- I mean, again, I'm not just talking about night to night. I'm not just talking about September 2001. I mean, I think we've gotten a little bit better about showing uh, the the big fireballs and the collapse. We we tend to shy away from some of those really awful uh, shots the more we talk about it in retrospect. But we, again, for years, you couldn't go anywhere without. Anytime somebody started talking about it, you'd see a damn fireball. And we again, we're talking about 50 years of American history and a whole lot of mass death along the way, both at home and abroad. But I, I think these are an obsession of ours, uh, and you can look at any number of things in our history to try and figure out why are, do these things hold so much weight in the American psyche. But I think there is a fascination not just with singular murder, but with uh, wide-scale unsafety, right? Anything yeah. that uh, teases at the, the back doors of the mind, right? I th- well, I was just saying, I think we're starting to explore even mass shooting, school shootings yeah. in that way. I mean, you look at uh, American Horror Story season one deals with this. There's you a little bit of that there, yeah. The elephant and the uh, elephant, big time, yeah. Lord Gus Van Sant, yeah. yeah. Um, also, I mean, Sons of Anarchy does this in, in one season, yeah, and, season and six, then right? Vox Lux from last year really oh, delves yeah. into this as well. So I, I think we're getting the point. I think we've somewhat artistically, culturally, are moving from nine eleven, but now I mean, we just have daily tragedies on the scale. Yeah, are, yeah. I just want to sort of name the romanticization a little bit, though. Yeah, there's a mystery to serial killers that you're you're right. Uh, mass shooters lack that mystery for us to be like to hang our hats on, right? Well, yeah. and, and there is a way in which, again, you've got somebody like Hannibal Lecter, you've got somebody like Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, you've got somebody, you know, again, even Freddy Krueger for crying out loud, who is in a weird way charismatic, at least if not sexy, if not likable in some sense. Freddy's less of those things, but more, much more so with a Hannibal Lecter, much more so with an Anthony Perkins um, character. And there's a way in which those serial killer stories sort of become attractional sort of appeals. But when you look at the histories of an Eileen Warnos, when you look at the histories of a Henry Lee Lucas, you look at Ed Gein Gein or or, um, Richard Ramirez or whomever you want to look at, and this sort of John Wayne Gacy for crying out loud, they are gross. They are unattractive but in sort of any, every way, right? Then you have Ted Bundy. Do you got Dahmer? Yeah, you've got Ted Bundy. Dahmer is a weird exception. There's, I mean, there's, you, you want to start talking, if we, we, we could be here all day trying to do uh, typographies and whatnot, right? I mean, the, the FBI's got a literal unit for it. But right. I think what Dustin, Dustin makes an interesting point, and I think this speaks to Anthony Perkins' performance, Perkins has a uncomfortability around other people that, I makes you think that Perkins did a lot of his homework. Perkins comes across as uh, kind of a loner kept to himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Perkins does a masterful job of showing us the ways in which Norman Bates is simultaneously disarming, charming, and very upsetting to be around. I think that's what's so great about that scene with Arbogast when mm-hmm. he's just completely thrown off his guard. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's a great performance mm-hmm. element of that. Yeah, no, the the that back and forth him and Arby, really any time somebody puts the screws uh, to Anthony Perkins is a really interesting scene because he he modulates so much based on how long the scene's been going on, who his scene partner is, like he does a lot of stuff in there. But that that initial one with uh, with uh, Jana Lee, there's just so I mean both of them are doing a lot of great work, but there are so many moments where uh, Perkins will 
uh, modulate like his anger or his uh, patheticness, and Lee will simultaneously modulate her fear or her because uh, there's times where she seems Marion seems afraid of Norm, but there's other times where she seems like really to feel super sorry for this guy. Yeah. Like she she and has figured out what he's attracted. Like. She's a little off for him, sure. I think I yeah, think yeah. the film. I don't think you're reading into that. I think the film wants. I think both actors play an attraction for sure. There's a chemistry. But I mean, I think there is. It's more of a. I don't know that it's necessarily sexual so much as she. She. He's cute, and she feels bad for him. I. I think I, she can tell that he does not get out. Well, she looks like he looks a lot like uh, the little brother of Sam. They Whoa! Very yeah. similar. Yeah. Oh my Damn, gosh! Damn, dude. I noticed yeah. it the first time looking at. He does look those. What's the guy that plays Sam's name? It's not important, know. but him and Perkins do look yeah. alike. You're right. So I, I think that's there. really interesting as well. Absolutely. Whoa. Okay, we we've not done our duty with feminism in this film at all yet, so we've got to go move to that um, at this point. And uh, what I want to discuss here is specifically the the killing of women, you know, as a trope in film, and also moving beyond that, just um, Perkins's own sort of queer status and uh, the question of. Why does this movie seem to not really want to give agency to anybody who is a woman? I mean, there's a moment when Marion Crane does something to take advantage of her life, and it's snatched from her. And the same way Marion Crane – or not Marion Crane, um, Vera Miles' character – Lila. Lila. Uh, thank you very much. Um, she She moves and moves Sam and sort of – it cajoles him into action, cajoles Arbogast into action, but she ends up in a moment of utter inaction in which she's down there in the bottom of the fruit cellar, and it's Sam Lewis who recovers from his head injury and is able to sort of overcome Norman Bates. And the last shot of the movie, I mean, without the epilogue, is the dead mother. There's a way in which this movie... I mean, it kind of hates women, and I, I think we got to talk about that yeah. more than just a little bit. So, um, I guess go is what I want to say right now. <laughs> yeah, gee, no pressure. It's yeah, it's hard to say where it comes from. I mean, we've we've kind of pointed out potential sources throughout the evening, right? Uh, Hitchcock, Hitchcock is being one of them for sure. But well, again, the, the monstrous mother itself as a trope throughout cinema afterward too, right? Bingo. Well, and this ties us back to our fascination with serial killers, right? So many of our prominent male serial killers start with uh, with a mother. Uh, not all of them, obviously, but a pretty a lot of big names. Your Geens, your Kempers, like. It's a long list. Mother uh, issues. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, a hatred of women that stems from a hatred of a mother figure. Uh, so all the ingredients are there to make a film that is misogynistic should you choose to make one. Um, and uh, it's it's hard with the 60s, right? Like, it's hard to tell when is a film being realistic about uh, a woman's options and the time and a place, and when is a film just being gross, Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it's it, I, I I struggle with it literally every time we watch something made before you know pick an arbitrary year but yeah, it's something I I've always find myself struggling with when we want watch movies from a certain time era or depicting a certain time era for that matter I find it terribly troubling um, as I I mean I'm not an expert in true crime or serial killers but I've you know I'm 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 part of the 21st century and I'm as into it as anybody who listens to the podcasts that do this kind of stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really troubled by how often that when the backstory is revealed, it is either a, um, overbearing mother or an absent father and how rarely the conversation is about present fathers 
and their responsibility. There's a weird way in which the only way in which dads make serial killers is by not being there. And moms make serial killers by being there too much. And I do find, again, a sort of a cultural diagnosis, a symptomatic cultural diagnosis in which not necessarily this is the truth of what makes a serial killer, but the way in which we narrativize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and I, I thought that's what you're getting at because yeah. I, there's plenty of examples of serial killers who had abusive fathers and that or you know, contributed to their dads pathology. Or, or okay dads who just weren't good enough or yeah, but, whatever. But right. you're absolutely right, though, that the cultural narrative does certainly start to become what we get in psycho i mean it's a it's a big film big films have a tendency to impact uh cultural uh understandings of, of certain things right mm-hmm. mm. but yeah i mean it, it seems far too easy to make moms monsters and um the way to explain away dad and again there are stories about abusive fathers i mean that those narratives do carry but more often than not um dad's problem is not being there and mom's problem is being there too much. And I just, I find that entire sort of weird dialectic to be, you know, s- just s- massively misogynistic. And uh, again, sort of symptomatic of some of the patriarchy that sort of inflects our culture. And yeah, I just want to say that. There's interesting moments in this film, though. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Lila does a lot of cajoling of Sam and in uh, ways I think are really interesting, though. Uh, because she is the one that is, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that you can look at this as, as Norman's film, and as Arthur mentioned, you could look at it as Lila's film, and I think mm-hmm. if it's not Norman's film, the second half is definitely Lila's, because she has to spend so much of the film trying to convince people to investigate her sister's disappearance, uh, which is true of when women disappear uh, to this day, right? I mean, a cop saying, oh, she probably just ran off. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Like, that's not, if you have done any... Uh, as Dustin mentioned, you know, if you have put any podcast in your ears over the last five years or so, there's a good chance it was true crime related. And there are plenty of examples of uh, cases that go cold or go unsolved longer than they should have because people wanted to just assume that ah, somebody's just, they'll be back. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, and Lila does so much in this film that, again, I. <sighs> It feels easy to go ahead and say, well, Psycho's obviously misogynistic. And sure, I mean, it's the 1960s and it's directed by Alfred Hitchcock. There's plenty of gross stuff in here. But there's nuances that, again, as, as I said, I, I, I go back and forth. Is it a time and a place? Is it uh, a realistic depiction of 1960s Americana? Is, you know, there's a number of questions that are just kind of fundamentally unanswerable at a, to a certain extent. Uh, but I think there's enough there in... Um, the performances of, uh, of I keep wanting to say Marion Crane, uh, Janet Lee, and um, oh my Vera God, Miles. Vera Miles. Thank you. Uh, we've said her name enough. You think that one would have stuck? Uh, but I think there's enough in both of their performances that I, I don't know gives both of those characters enough depth. And, and sure, it's not really on the page, it's not in the screenplay or in the dialogue, but there's enough going on. And, you know, it makes me love 60s acting sometimes. People do a lot of big face acting because uh, it's still, uh, we're not that far away from stage acting. But uh, I like a, I like a lot of good eye work. And I mm-hmm. think they both do a ton of great eye work in this film. Uh, especially when uh, somebody does something that's uh, shitty. Uh, like not listen to their concerns about their definitely murdered sister. Uh, I, I think there is a lot of great work. And I think uh, Alex brought this up earlier. You know, about male directors breaking female actors to try and get what they want when well, let's just trust people to do their jobs. Yeah. And I think uh, 
both actresses equip themselves extremely well in Psycho in terms of doing their job and communicating a lot of inner life in those characters. And I think I would feel that the film was more misogynistic had, I mean, I, I can't, I can't safely say if this is Hitchcock's direction, if this is just performance or if it's even in the script or whatever. But I like from the moment Janet steals the money and she's on the way, like I know that if I got was on the side of the highway and I just woken up and a cop is knocking on my window, I'd be freaking the fuck out. That seems yeah. So scary. And she's like, she's like nervous, obviously, but she's keeping it under control. The used car thing. She's very like, she's obviously suspicious and doing not, you know, she, she's not a master, a criminal mastermind. That'd be very unrealistic, but she's actually keeping it together. All things concerned. Mm-hmm. If she was like losing her head and like bursting into tears, like this, I'd be able to be like, okay, she's kind of a, you know, and I'd be able to write her off as just like a kind of a trope, a stereotype. But the fact that she like, it feels like she has depth and she has like this real sympathy um, for Norman. Whenever we get to that portion, it just, it is that kind of that punitive turn on both of them. By the end, it's like, oh, well, we're not going to go find your sister. Oh, well, you're just going to die. You know, like that there. But you I do feel like punished, that. Yeah. I feel like this, the meat of the sandwich uh, offside the, the shit bread is like <laughs> it's like a good performance that like makes you not want to bring the hammer on it being like, OK, this is super misogynistic because they she does keep being the squeaky wheel. And it's stupid that she has to do that. But like her the fact that she's kind of cool and level-headed i'm not mad at her i mean all the things she's reacting to are like naturally scary whenever we get to vera in the house like it's never over the top to the point where i'm like you're just a stupid slasher film heroine that that was written that way it it feels very nuanced and even-handed sure you know man saves the day but i guess that's the 1960s probably so all right well there are any other big analytical thoughts before we move on to our next section Man, we really could have spent a lot of time uh, on uh, gender bending as a uh, predictor for criminality in Hollywood, but uh, we've talked about it on the show before. Okay. Uh, that's like the only big E on the I chart thing that I had written down we didn't get to. All right, well, let's render a verdict then. Um, shelf or trash? Psycho. We'll go around um, counterclockwise. Dalton, go first. Well, I can't I can't be the person that puts this movie in the trash. Like, I don't want to do that. You I could be. I'm, I could be. I don't want to be that person. I'm not ready to die on that hill today. This movie's too good, and I don't have <laughs> enough mean things to say about it uh, to do that. So, yeah, it goes on the shelf uh, for a lot of reasons. It's an important text. Uh, it's potentially a damaging text, but, you know, who can ever be sure about these things? And uh, we got to watch it and, you know, do this dumb thing we just did to figure that kind of stuff out. So, yeah. Mm. It's an important movie. Uh, it is influential and worth talking about. Absolutely. Shelf this, baby. Very good, very good. Hey, Alex, this is your pick. Yo. You're going to shelf it or trash it. Oh, I'm going to shelf it. This is, a, this is a movie I already own on my shelf in my very nice, restored Hitchcock Blu-ray box set. Uh, but I also would say shelf it if you don't already have it because it's a seminal work. And it's also just a good movie. Mm-hmm. It's a good movie. It's not a... I mean, I'm really sorry to like the gods of film and everyone listening to this that I fell asleep the first time. I was just having a bad day. It is really nothing against this film. I've fallen asleep trying to watch Death Stall like four times. It's okay. Yeah. I still haven't finished. Okay, there Death will be Stall blood. Stall is not psycho, but yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, look. Sometimes you fall asleep during things that you've heard or get. Yeah, yeah exactly. Happens. So, um, it, definitely not a verdict, but my verdict is definitely shelf. Awesome, awesome. What do you say, Arthur? Uh, shelving solely because it's uh, historically the first instance of a toilet flushing on screen. <laughs> solely Wait, because. Wait, is, is that real? That's yeah. true. Real. They had to get that past the censors to flush a toilet on screen. Oh, boy. 
What a different time. Fun facts. JK, I, 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 we've given a litany of reasons this belongs on a shelf. Any shelf, your shelf, my shelf, everybody's shelf. Buy this movie, own this movie, watch this movie multiple times. Shelf, obviously. It's the canon. I mean, and again, there's a weird, weird way in which I'm like, oh, kill the canon, blow it up, obliterate the canon. Also, yeah, there's a canon, and this movie's part of whatever canon you construct. It is just that important. You've you got could, to watch Psycho. I mean, it's one of those films, like Stagecoach, you could single-handedly teach an entire intro to film studies course using this one film. Yeah, almost. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Outside of world cinema. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. And so, yeah, um, Psycho is just that big of a deal. you got to watch it. It's so fun. It's so good. It's so problematic. And that's where the analytical discussion comes in. I think that is actually part of its um, attraction for me, is that it does raise so many questions. It does breach so many problems. And uh, in a way that's sort of overt, that easily we can access as a conversation and so psycho continues to be one of the most important films in my life and so yeah psycho is totally on the shelf uh for me as well so there you go that's a show folks um i'm done our um dalton whoever say, uh-huh. <laughs> that one you the one that talks the, hey. <laughs> he is yeah. the one that talks. hey yeah talk do i'll do the thing Hey, before you do, yeah. uh, if you're interested in follow us, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. You can find us on Facebook, good trash media. Uh, if you want to give us some money, head us over to uh, patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, you can run over to iTunes, your favorite podcatcher of choice, rate, review, subscribe, do that whole thing. Uh, now that you've heard that spiel, it is time to wrap up Shocktober 8, The Ocho. Hey, Dalton, mm. what's your pick? Thanks for doing the boring part for me, Arthur, because now I get to do this part. Well, I had a really hard time picking. Uh... Arthur and I both talked about uh, doing Rosemary's Baby, but as we've alluded to, we've already talked about Roman Plancy this year, and I didn't want to fucking have to do it again. We're done with him. Yeah, so I, I looked long and hard at my uh, my dead spots, uh, and Alex inspired me. Pumpkinhead. Pumpkinhead. No Pumpkinhead, I'm sorry. Uh, we had an accidental double feature of The Undead with Dawn of the Dead and Bride of Frankenstein, and Alex teed us up for a serial killer double feature. So, we've already mentioned him a couple of times. We will, in fact, be watching a film inspired by the nightmare of a human being, Henry Lee Lucas. We will be watching Michael Rooker in Henry Colon Portrait of a Serial Killer, the infamous cult favorite, uh, I, I've heard nothing but horrible things about this film. Uh, speaking of movies that indict you for watching them, we're going to be talking about that. That's why another reason I didn't want to get into it a whole lot today because there's I, more serial killers this, ahoy. We're going to have to talk about it for like a whole another hour next week. Uh, but yeah, I this is Michael Rooker's uh, big breakthrough performance. You'll see it listed as 86 or 90, depending on where you look for it because it had a whole lot of weird uh, release stuff because it's a big, gross, abhorrent film, apparently. And we'll get to talk all about production and rating systems and all the fun stuff. Oh, yeah. We'll get to talk about the MPA a whole bunch. We'll get to talk about Chicago Theater, maybe. There's a whole bunch of shit we're going to get to talk about. It's going to be nuts. It's uh, a film that is definitely infamous. So it will be uh, closing out the Ocho for us. And despite what we talk about, you keep watching and we'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time.